Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Closers Inner Circle podcast hosted by your partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my co-host, Ben Gay III, we get together every week on Wednesdays and we dive into the world of sales mastery. And we're always working with a gem from the Closers Part 2. Now, these books, 1 and 2, are widely known as are widely known as the sales bibles. I'll get through this, I promise. So in this episode, we dive into the art of closing deals on page 157. This is one of my favorite chapters. Elmer Wheeler once dropped the golden nugget of sales wisdom when he said, find a need and fill it. Simple yet profound. And in the world of closers, understanding your client's needs is like wielding a magic wand. It's not just about selling a product. It's about fulfilling a requirement, solving a problem, or making life just a tad bit easier. And then enter the legendary Zig Ziglar with his timeless philosophy. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can get what you want. And I wish I could say it like he does. You can get what you want if you help enough people. Other people get what they want first. And in my head, I can hear him with that drawl. So I'm, I'm trying to not talk like Zig Ziglar because I can't. So closers take notes. Success in sales is not a solo journey. It's a collaborative dance where understanding, empathy, and genuine care can help you pave the way to closing those game-changing deals. And let's not forget the wisdom of Fred Herman. People don't buy drills. They buy holes. What is it? The stake and the sizzle? Kind of along that, those same lines. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's not about the features of your product. It's about the benefits it brings to the customer. And understanding the end result your your client or your customer desires is key to crafting a compelling pitch that resonates. And I know I'm stuttering and stammering a bit. I'm tired. It's right after Christmas and my feet are cold. Those are my excuses. I have two of them. Ben, welcome back to our show. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Are you through whining? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a real question? You know me. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, 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 I'll work doing... it out. You know, I'll I'll just drop little, you know, whines and cries, you know, in, in the show because we've got 60 minutes. Well, you have, can't expect have me one of the cats lie on your feet. Yeah. My feet are frozen. <laughs> I got uh, GDA heating pad, sort of fancier than that, but a heating pad basically. And it vibrates, or if you turn on the switch right, it has sort of a rolling action in it. The theory is it gives you a back rub and so on. Uh, and she took it and put it on the bed. Her feet get cold also. And uh, she said, I'm going to really enjoy this. Just about the time that one of our cats who adopted us discovered the heating pad also. And except to eat and go to the bathroom, he hasn't been off the heating pad since. <laughs> and Gigi, I don't think, has been on or under the heating pad since. <laughs> he loves it. You need to get her her very own. Because <laughs> that's not going to give it up. If that's possible. I'm not sure <laughs> with, with a cat. You can have anything that's all your own. Well, Years ago, our one. next door neighbor had a cat named Thomas. One of our cats is named after that cat. And mother had a Niagara vibrating heating pad. She had arthritis. It was a big, thick thing with a head on the top where the motor was, I guess, and so on. And uh, she would lie on the sofa watching television with the Niagara heating pad. And uh, about 
I don't remember the time, but it was usually dark outside that she'd get her heating pad fired up. Thomas, the next door cat, would hop up on the window, big picture window, and look in. That was his signal, I want in. His arch enemy was our boxer, a guy named Flash. And Flash and Thomas had had a couple of run-ins, and they decided to ignore each other from that time on. I've seen Thomas walk under Flash, and Flash didn't see him. And Thomas didn't see Flash. That was how they worked out their truce. If we don't acknowledge each other, we don't have to kill each other. Thomas would hop up on the window. Mother would let him in. <clears throat> He'd hop up on the sofa, get down on the heating pad, and begin using the back cushion, pushing her off of it. <laughs> and Flash would lie there on the floor at the base of the sofa, pretending like this big gray cat did not come into the house. He did not see it. He didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> so that was how they worked out their truce. But the, their uh, common ground was within a few feet of mother, pad. and that was because of the eating pad. That reminds me of kids. You know, you'll see kids running. I used to see my little nephews do this, can run and naked out of the bathroom. They were fresh out of the wash, the called the washing machine. That's what they called it. They hated bathing. And they come running out there, you know, hand clasped over their eyes and another hand clasped over their dangly bits. You can't <laughs> see me naked. You can't see me naked. So they couldn't see us. So we didn't exist. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's how, yeah. how you steal cookies. That's exactly you right. Shut your eyes and quietly, as quietly as you can, open the cookie jar. It's pretty simple. Yeah, we all, cats, people, we find ways around rules. So what are we talking about today? I mean, this, I love these nuggets that are in this, this chapter. And, you know, course, I wish I could say it the way he said, you can get what you want, but I can't do it. Remember, the sentence started out with y'all. Yeah, that's true. Y'all can get whatever you want, so long as you help other people get what they want first. Right. Um, what do you do for a living? Page 157 in the closers part two. And it's really a vital part of selling because most people, most salespeople, amateur salespeople, which is most, um, don't know where they are in the presentation or whatever it is they're doing. You mentioned Fred Herman. That was one of my favorite quotes from him. People don't buy quarter inch drills. They buy quarter inch holes. And I remember where I was sitting in Atlanta the first time I heard him say that. And I thought, wow, it was one of those, you know, where the lights come on. Oh, we're yeah. not selling a product. We're selling the result of having and using the product. And uh, I, it was Elmer Wheeler, by the way, who said, sell the sizzle, not the steak. You mentioned that oh, earlier. Oh, 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 I didn't realize that was him. I probably did, but yeah, you know, find a need and fill it. So, and he did. That was also his. Heck, right. And uh, probably, oh, I think of that sell the sizzle thing. Omaha Steaks is back on television as they are seasonally selling their 89, what, what used to be their $49 package is now their $89 package of stuff and what they show is two filet mignons being fried that sort of scares me but anyway you fry that yeah, well no. they're in a frying pan and no, they're no, sizzling no. And, okay and whoever did that ad probably subconsciously knows what he's what he or she is doing but i guarantee you they've never heard of elmer wheeler or sell sizzle not the steak 
but while these two fillets are sizzling in the pan, I find myself like Pavlov's dogs <clears throat> drooling slightly. And I think Elmer Wheeler would be so proud. They are, there they are. And let me tell you one more Elmer Wheeler story, slightly off subject, but not much. Uh, Woolworth, which used to be the largest restaurant, F.W. Woolworth Five and Dimes, also was the world's largest restaurant chain with their lunch counters in all those stores. I read somewhere one time that they had 29 miles of lunch counters if they, you know, stretched out. And uh, so they called in Elmer Wheeler. They wanted to increase sales. And uh, he said, well, don't people just come in and pretty much eat what they want because they're hungry? Yeah, but, you know, we make more on some things. He said, what's your highest profit item? And they said, oddly enough, we don't know what you can do with this, but it's an egg. We make more money buying eggs wholesale and reselling them than any other thing behind the lunch counter. He says, huh. So he comes into some store somewhere and sits at the end of the counter with a notepad and just starts watching. And much to his surprise, he didn't know they were doing this. Uh, people would come in, not everybody, but enough where it caught his attention. And they'd say, I'd like a, a milkshake, please, with an egg in it. And he'd never heard of that. But it apparently was an option. So the lady would reach under the counter. You know, they had those circular, it'd be straight for about five feet and then go out in a big circle and then straight again, a big circle and so on. Underneath the counter in, at the tip of the circles were eggs. And and so he asked one of the ladies, what, what is with the egg thing? She said, well, some people, it thickens the milkshake and they just really love it. Uh, other people uh, can't stand the thought of eating a raw egg, no matter how well it's blended. And uh, so we don't sell a lot of them, but it works pretty well. Uh, and he said, fine. So he goes back to corporate and he says, okay, here's the deal. Have every waitress make sure there's always eggs under her serving area, not sometimes, always. And whenever anybody orders a milkshake, she reaches under and he showed them how to palm it. She reaches under and palms two eggs and holds them up in front of the customer and says, one egg or two. Oh. And enough people who'd never alternate choice clothes, but it's also an assumptive clothes. Um, enough people who'd never thought about having an egg and never had one said one. Sort of like, I'll, I'll give it a try. Enough people who had one had never thought of having two said two. And he, with that little phrase at F.W. Woolworth's Five and Dime, created a temporary several months long egg shortage in the United States. And it became no the idea. most profitable item other than the jewelry department that Woolworth sold. And see, when you said eggs, I thought, well, boiled eggs, you know, like you see those eggs in a jar. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah I, I didn't even think <laughs> about raw eggs. I was a bartender briefly in my wayward youth and on the count in a dive bar type thing in St. Petersburg, Florida, when I was in the Coast Guard and on the counter. And that was big. I guess two gallon glass jars were uh, pig's feet. In oh, God. Yeah, that was sort of my reaction. <laughs> I don't oh. think I ever served one. I didn't even make eye contact with them. Oh. And pickled hard boiled eggs. 
all in the same type of presentation. Those people actually ate and it didn't bother me, although the smell was a little interesting. Uh, but uh, I, I said, I remember saying to the owner of the Crystal Bar in St. Petersburg, I said, Johnny, what are those? I'm from the South. I had never seen a pig's foot ready to be eaten. He said, well, those are pig's feet, Ben. Haven't you ever had one? No. You want one? No. <laughs> I've had plenty of pork. I've had sausage. So since I've had sausage, I've had pig's feet. But they didn't look like pig's feet when I was eating them. But anyway, one egg or two, an assumptive alternate choice close was so effective, it uh, created a national egg shortage until the farmers caught back up. What year was this, more or less? Uh, I knew the story in uh, like the early 60s, so it probably happened before that, obviously. I'm guessing the mid to late 50s. I'm going to have to go look that up. That is apt. I mean, that's fascinating. And I don't think Woolworths is even still around, are they? I don't believe so. I don't either. They, they were really something in their day. I can still, you said Woolworths, and I could smell it. Cheap perfume and popcorn as soon as you walked okay. into the store. And most of them had wooden floors because they were old uh, then. Right, uh, right. But they were, if you want to learn how to sell something, you go to Woolworths and just stand there quietly and watch. They were really something. Forerunner to Kmart and Walmart and all those uh, now giant stores. Don't you wish we could go back to some of that? Yeah, we have somewhere around here, we have an F.W. Woolworth, one of the little small towns, complete with the wooden floors and all. And I, I said to the owner, manager, whatever he was one day, I thought uh, you guys were out of business. And he said, they are, but there's no one left to tell us to quit. Oh, so he, he never took down his sign. It was like, it, to him, it's like it never happened. Well, good for him. <laughs> does, does he have a, um? what do you call it, when you go and you get an ice cream, like at the ice cream bar or whatever, whatever yeah. you call that. Uh, I've, I can see it in my head. Yeah, yeah. I don't really remember if he did or not, but I remember walking in. It was like stepping into a time machine, cheap I perfume. Bet popcorn, wooden floors, and uh, uh, things considerably less than they were other places the day I was there. It was right. it was really a step back in the time machine. Oh, I would move in. I would just park my car and live there. <laughs> you know, like, can I use the bathroom? Okay, I got to go. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> I would love to find a store like that. i don't like shopping. I never have. It's just not something that I've enjoyed. So, you know, when all of a sudden I realized that I could order everything, including my house online, I was like, okay. But every once in a while, you want to find a place like the one you just described. Mm -hmm. Just kind of walk in and take a deep breath. Yeah. And I, Amazon and places like it win so much business. We don't, in the beginning, go back X number of years, we never bought anything from Amazon and I never intended to. And then one day I needed something, hearing aid batteries or something. And our local store was out of the drugstore we go to was out of them. And the guy behind the counter said, you might try on Amazon. 
I'm not sure I even know how to do that, but I did. And the uh, batteries were, uh, well, I'm guessing 50% less than they were at the drugstore. And they promised to have them to me in two or three days, which they did. And I slowly but surely wandered off in the Amazon jungle in that. And we sell the closers there, too. Uh, right. The uh, I would prefer to shop locally. We know almost every store owner in Placerville. Gigi, I guess, knows them all. They'll say it opened in the last 60 days or so. Some of them are 150 years old. And she knew their grandparents and they knew hers and, and so on. So I prefer that kind of shopping. Inconvenient, though, it sometimes is. But the way they lose me is it only takes one time to discover that Amazon can have it here in two days for less money. And that that item then tends to move off of the local list. Now, I know a little local store can't carry everything, but uh, there are probably 10 or 15 things now we get exclusively from Amazon because they weren't available when I wanted them at a local store. And you can have subscriptions, so they show up, you know, you don't even have yeah. to remember that yeah. they're coming. They just show up at the door, yeah. which is very convenient. So anyway, let's get back to know what you're yeah. selling or what do you do for a living? Uh, the answer to that question, which is hanging in the air, is you solve problems. And every time I hear a sales trainer say that with no follow-up, and I watch people, you know, oh, here we go, solve problems, set goals. Uh, we're going to hear the same stuff again. It's a little deeper than that. One, you solve obvious problems. Two, where they're not obvious, you create or point out problems that people didn't even like know. Eggs. I would have never thought of that. Yeah. People don't know they have the problem until it's pointed out to them. And then, of course, exaggerated a little bit. They can't wait to solve that problem. I used to sell Foley quad-cut lawnmowers at Macy's in Atlanta. And what it was was four blades under the deck. The deck looked like a boomerang. And uh, it, it cut a 42-inch swath instead of the biggest rotary lawnmowers back then. I assume it's probably still true. Cut a 36-inch swath, swath. So I immediately, with my quick little brain, figured out six inches wider every time you make a run down the lawn times x number of runs and i worked out some figure in my mind so it's 20 you know you walk around your yard 20 percent less and so on it turned out the foley quad cut had some other problems but that wasn't the point at the time i created a problem in people's mind you're walking too many times around the yard where with the foley quad cut you wouldn't have to do that well that's fine i i need that and my lawnmower at home is working just fine, but I want the Foley quad cut anyway and uh, sold a whole bunch of them. And I said later, I discovered some problems with wet grass in the south and each blade was run by a separate rubber band for lack of a rubber belt. And so they would slip and that beautiful manicured cut I was envisioning when I was selling them sometimes was a little ragged. And uh, I went out to the warehouse one day and stacked over in the corner in the repair department was probably half of the fully quad cuts I had sold. 
uh, because they were in to be tightened up or this or that because the blades didn't really work. But the concept, the original concept, when I was operating out of ignorance was we have a problem. You're spending too much time in the hot sun in Atlanta walking around the yard where with a 42-inch swath, you would walk less. You'd be out in the heat less, et cetera. So I created a problem and then solved it. But that's true of so many different things. The other thing that uh, salespeople get confused about is what are they selling at any given time? Where, At what point are you in the sale? I probably have shared this with you before, but a, a client in Hawaii who sells land in Arizona came to me and he said, we're running these little bitty ads but we're not having much response. And they were uh, an inch or less. And he said, I'm told you're the best. Can you write an ad that'll sell one acre lots in Arizona to people who've never seen the property and may never see the property? They buy it for their grandchildren or the future or their retirement dream or whatever. In one inch, I said, no, I can't. And uh, he says, what? <laughs> you know? I was told you could sell anything to anybody. I said, well, th that may be true, although I wouldn't. And two, I can't sell anything to anybody in a one-inch ad. What I can do in a one-inch ad is know what I'm selling at any given time. And what I'm selling then is to get them to call us. You know, well, I don't have enough operators for that. And I don't want to hire all those people. I didn't say uh, talk live. In fact, the ad to get more people to call will be, so sale one is get them to call. It's not sell them property. Then the job is to get more of them to call. So I said, call toll free to hear a recording about this opportunity. When they realize they're not going to talk to a live operator and be badgered into doing something they don't want to do, more people called. When they called, I, I wrote a script, but I actually wound up narrating it. I come on the phone and encourage you to leave your name, address, and phone number. And back then, I'm not sure email was a factor, but whatever. Uh, name, address, and phone number so that we can send you a free package, including a color brochure about the property. Says, so there, there was someone on the property. I said, no, we're trying to get their name, address, and phone number so we can get the packet in their hand. Now, with the packet in their hand, we're starting to sell property. And that's three steps deep. We've already made two sales to get them this far. This is the third step into the jungle. And there we uh, get their name, address, and phone number and mail out the package, complete with a dynamic sales letter that I wrote and a beautiful color brochure that they already had and a description of what goes on when you join their community and, and so on. And then we sell the property. Well, he had, I'm making up numbers. I don't remember a thousand lots or acres. I was having a very difficult time selling it. Less than a year later, he had to go buy more property to sell because we were selling so much. The difference was I knew what I was selling at the time. Uh, phone call. Give me your name, address, and phone number. Here's the brochure. Here's the property. Sign up. Then we go to the fourth step. Since you, you don't want to live out here all by yourself with people you don't know in the beginning, give me your friend's name, blah, 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 and you get a referral fee for doing that. So now we have salespeople working for us who started out as property owners. 
again, another step in the process. But you have to know what you're selling and when you're selling at all times. And what you're selling, back to the original concept Fred Herman taught us, you're not selling quarter-inch drills. Nobody wants a quarter-inch drill. They want quarter-inch holes. Nobody wants a, an acre of desert land in Arizona that they're probably never going to see or visit. What they want is they want to buy hope. Uh, you know, we know we're retiring. We know what we're leaving our grandkids. It's not much now, but it will be in 20, 30 years and, and uh, so on. So knowing what I was selling, at what point I was selling it, I turned into a booming realtor. Not really. I wasn't licensed or anything, but I turned into a booming realtor and sold the better part of a thousand lots to people I'd never met and who never saw the property, and most of whom would probably never see the property. But we were selling hope and the future. So among the things that know what you're selling entails is know what it does for them and what they're really buying. I brought my first new Corvette. I bought in 1972. A, I didn't need, I didn't have a place to park it because uh, of a couple of Cadillacs and a Mercury something convertible my wife had at the time. Uh, but I bought it to look cool. A 1972 Corvette, the last year they put the chrome bumpers on it, was cool. I'm showing my age using that word, but I'm sure somebody can translate for our younger people. Well, and Corvette I, and cool, those do go together. All right. <laughs> I drove it through San Rafael, California. American Graffiti was shot on the street in my Corvette uh, top, T-top off. It was a T-top uh, Stingray. And people were waving at me. I mean, I'm just driving down the street. They never waved at me in any other car I had. They were waving because they saw a good-looking car and they wished they had one of them and they wished they, too, were cool. So that's the reason I bought it. That's the reason Herc, who I've talked to about before, sold it to me. He even said, drive it down and see the reaction. You, you really look good in this car. And, uh, of course, from the outside, you couldn't see that it was an automatic <laughs> with power windows, power seats, and everything. It was a good-looking Cadillac, was what it was. Um, but he, he sold me the coolness. I repeat, I didn't need another car. I technically, without moving some stuff around, didn't have a place to park it at home. Uh, but he figured out what I would probably want. My ego was big enough where... Uh, that, oh, and then I had a 236-pound St. Bernard, just short of the world's record. And you put Caesar, was his name, in the passenger seat with the T-top off, so he's looking over the top of the windshield. You put him in the car and drive down the main drag in San Rafael, California. You are really cool. <laughs> I'm picturing it. Yeah. I'm also picturing you hitting a wind and him slobbering all over it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was also a problem. I bet. As my wife, Marsha, who's passed away, but as Marsha used to say to visitors, don't worry, don't worry, it dries clear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when. <laughs> it wasn't while they were still at our house, but maybe when they got home, it, was, it dried clear. But those were, I'll have to admit, I love dogs. I love St. Bernard's. 
uh, et cetera. But I got Caesar because he was a perfect addition to the big house up on top of the hill. Oh, but he didn't care. You loved him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But my motives were uh, questionable in the beginning. And the lady who sold me, she bred St. Bernard's, the lady who sold me the St. Bernard was big on, you won't believe how much attention you'll get when this little fella gets up to his full weight. She didn't know how big that was going to be either. But when he gets up to his full weight and people will come out and I said, is it like a chick magnet? She said, exactly. <laughs> Give me I'm five. Sure I love that. <laughs> I had great Pyrenees at one point in my life, and I found out very quickly to scoop poop, you needed a shovel. <laughs> yeah. So th there was no walking around with a little plastic bag. You that was good. No, I can't. I can't imagine that. Caesar was before plastic bags, and so we lived on a lot of property. So I I don't even know where he went, nor did I care. He did another cute thing. He liked to go in the neighbor's garages and steal things like rakes and shovels and so on. He was and a working dog. Yeah. He would proudly bring them home, followed frequently by a neighbor. <laughs> Can I have my shovel back? But again, conversation piece. What are you really selling? What are you really getting out of it? And it frequently is not... Uh, why you bought it. Joe Sugarman down at the bottom of that chapter on page 162 says every problem has hidden with it an opportunity so powerful that it literally dwarfs the problem. The greatest success stories were created by people who recognized the problem and turned it into an opportunity. Remember they used to say about Bill Gates when Microsoft started going, he was selling the software, but of course the computer was a necessary component of that. People would say, it, uh, he has a solution in search of a problem. The world had gotten along just fine for thousands of years without a personal computer sitting on your desk. And a lot of people didn't think it was a necessary solution. So he created the problem, magnified it, and then sold you a piece of equipment and software to solve the new problem. And they keep on going. Listen, I'm over on page 160. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase here, but you were talking about in this, this is a long chapter, y'all. So grab the book and read it and then mark it up, you know, make your sticky notes on it because there's a lot of information in this chapter. But it, when you start at the end of 159, it says, what does each level of problem solving understanding bring you in the way of income? And in your years of observation, Ben, it would lead you to believe that it's Something like if you can only cure the easy to spot problems, you can only earn about 30% of the money that could be made. But if you can move yourself up to the category of salesperson who sees and solves the less obvious problems, you'll be start making about 70 to 75%. That's a big absolutely difference. right. Yeah. And big, it refers to that paragraph you were quoting from earlier. It says what you're going to uh, be dealing with, you're like a scavenger fish. It follows sharks and whales around eating the the uh, scraps and droppings, that's being polite, of the big guys. They may never starve, but they'll always be close to it. And that's the, the difference. I've sat down with salespeople, some I trained, some I didn't train, and, and have them go, have me going, wow, as in, I didn't know I had that problem. And by the time they got through explaining it, I couldn't live without the solution to that problem. 
And so we'd go from, we had a, a blind guy. I don't mean blind, he couldn't see. Blind cells, blinds that you put in your window. Uh, wooden customized things. He's now in the wine, in the, for real, the wine, W-I-N-E business nearby. But the first hey, time he, first I saw time what he, you did there. I'm telling you <laughs> why. The first time he came to his house, I was just amazed. I would, as most husbands, I was fine. We had blinds on all the windows, those little thin metal things, and they kept the light out and people from peering in and so on. I was a happy camper. Gigi decides we need new blinds. And I put up a little token resistance, and that was a waste of time. So pretty quick, uh, Mike is on our doorstep. And I open the door. I do not have a problem. I don't want him there. I don't need blinds. And he walked in. He says, hi, I'm Mike Owens. Shook my hand. You must be Ben Gay. Yes. And this is Gigi Gay. Yes. All right. Let me see. Didn't sit down. Didn't put. I guess he dropped his briefcase somewhere. But he said, uh, okay, show me the windows uh, I'm here to fix. That was an interesting oh, well. word. There wasn't anything wrong with him to start with. <clears throat> Show me the windows I'm here to fix. And he starts off down the hall. I guess the theory is there's got to be windows down here. So rather than have them figure out where to start, I'll just go to a window somewhere. And I think he went in the kitchen first and he pulls out his measuring uh, tape and he starts measuring windows. And then he goes to one of the bathrooms and then the bedroom and so on. And, uh, he said, let me uh, recommend something for you. Uh, I notice you have the, the aluminum or whatever they are, uh, shades up, up top, no. huh? Venetian blinds, I guess they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. So he says, uh, let me save you some money. Oh, save me some money? That's good. I was about to, I thought uh, suddenly I was going to have less money, but now we're going to save money. He said, let's not do the upstairs now. People can't see in, you rarely look out, and they're probably blocking the sun just fine. So let's, if, if you're thrilled with today's uh, order, assumptive selling, if mm -hmm. you're thrilled with today's order, we can do that in the future. Okay, now, and he pulls out all his measurements, and I'm trying to sort of mentally running through it in my head in the living room. I'm guessing there are five windows, dining room, another five, uh, five, ten, five. We're probably looking at 20, 25 windows between bathrooms, bedrooms, and so on downstairs. And he sits down. And he says, now, <clears throat> we have those that are wood and those that look like wood. Let me save you some more money. Get the ones that look like wood. A, they last longer. Nobody's going to be examining them or testing them to see if it's mahogany or something. And they look great, will last longer. It's probably the last ones you'll ever have to buy. And uh, uh, I would feel really good about that. So what we're down to is what color and texture does Mrs. Gay like? And he, he said to me, your your opinion is important, but since her, since her opinion is the only one that matters, do you mind if I just talk to her now? Smart guy. <laughs> yeah, I said, no. Go ahead. I'm beaten down anyway. Might as well finish off the job. She picks out a color. He taps on his little calculator for a few minutes. He said, okay, that's, I forget what it was, a few thousand dollars. And I can have them in here. Custom made to your windows. 
in about two weeks. Fair enough. And Gigi and I and I said, You've read my book. I was gonna say, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he said, actually I have. He said, when I saw Ben Gay on the lead sheet, I thought, I wonder if that's the Ben Gay. And, uh, and I said, and you've done an excellent job, by the way. And I signed the thing. Beginning to end was not 30 minutes. He was assumptive. He quickly created a problem. He became my trusted advisor because he didn't try and sell me windows I probably didn't need. I also probably would have bought them and eventually did. I know there's those things are upstairs now. Uh, but uh, he became my trusted advisor because he didn't try and oversell me. In fact, he cut back the potential order. He saved me money in what we made out of them. He told me, I don't think it was a guarantee, but you're going to, these are the last ones you'll ever buy. And that's 20 years ago or more. And he's absolutely right. They look like they were put in yesterday. And uh, most importantly, it makes Gigi happy. I said, I'm in. <laughs> so that's I love the, that he read the book and he didn't have any problem saying well yes I did <laughs> no, yeah, yeah I did uh, but uh, and, and that was flattering you know somebody's giving you a sales presentation out of your book then you know one of your books uh, I'm thinking well he's good and if, if, if what I wrote is good then I guess I ought to buy and on top of that he's created this huge problem I didn't know I had <laughs> He really read the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I imagine he read it backwards and forwards several <laughs> times. But the end result is that you're happy with it. She's happy with it. And you got what you were told you were going to get. Right. On time. On time. Yeah. Right. And I didn't have to listen to an endless sales presentation, which might be another part of this lesson. Tell them what they need to know to feel good about their decision and buy they don't need to know everything that you know about the quarter inch drill or the window blinds or the new car or whatever. A, a car, for instance, I read somewhere has 7,000, the average car has 7,000 parts on it. There are salespeople I know who know all 7,000 parts and want to tell you about them. What I wanna know is where's the steering wheel Where's the accelerator? Where are the brakes? And when those, and the, where's the key go? And when those don't work, what's your home phone number? Beyond that, I pretty much got a car figured out, buried in there somewhere, 7,000 parts. Great. I hope they all do their job. Uh, and uh, uh, it'll get you from point A to point B. And if it's a neat looking car, you'll look cool while you're getting there. And that's it. I don't need to know. I've probably shared the story with you when the tax laws changed. And if you bought a car that weighed over 6,000 6, pounds, then you could write it all off instantly. You didn't have to depreciate it. It was uh, like buying a ream of copy paper at, at uh, the office supply store. Uh, instant write-off of the whole amount. So I called my local vice president in charge of cars. And uh, Dick Clark, and I said, Dick, you have any cars over that weigh 7,000 pounds? I'm doing more seminars, taking inventory with me, so I need a bigger car, but it's got to be uh, 6,000 pounds. And uh, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that new tax deal. He said, we have two. 
the GMC Denali XL and the Toyota Sequoia, I think it was called. Uh, he said, I'll pull them both out on the lawn for you and then uh, pick the one that Gigi likes best. <laughs> he also understood how the game is played. Well, yeah. So we pull up and there's a white Denali sitting there and a gold Toyota uh, whatever. And he has a young salesman with him. Uh, who's he's going to show him, I guess, you know, watch how I sell. <laughs> it was already sold over the phone and through a several years long relationship before that. But uh, we pull up and uh, there's the two cars. And Gigi and I are already discussing colors because she couldn't care less about a car. And I don't care much more than less. And uh, she sort of liked the white one. So we get out and the guy says, now, let me show you some stuff. And he raises the hood and starts moving around. Then we'll do the test drive. And Dick Clark is saying to him, shut up. Just shut up. They want a 6,000-pound car. We have two of them. Here they are. We're down to colors. He said, oh, okay. Well, let me show you how the dashboard works. He doesn't care how the dashboard works yet. That's <laughs> So finally, uh, the young man shut up and Dick Clark uh, turned to uh, Gigi and said, gold or white? And she said, I like the white. And he says, I'll write it up. Now that's, I had a need, a 6,000 pound car for tax purposes. And I needed some, in, uh, some room to haul inventory of West Coast seminars with us. Beyond that, and, and Toyota, I'm sure, makes a fine car, and GMC makes a fine car. Uh, we're now down to what color does Gigi like? And when she said white, that solved that problem. The uh, Everything else was nonsense. It was problem-solving. Pro you want a 6,000-pound car? Here it is. You want white or gold? White, here it is. And then Dick said, Ben, you already have my phone number, but let me show this young man. He took out a new business card, wrote his cell phone number on the back and said, if anything ever goes wrong, call me. Another problem solved. I don't have to wonder how do I get it fixed when this tank breaks down, which it never did. Punchline to that, my brother-in-law, who's a real car guy, he, he, he listens when he and my sister are going somewhere. He listens to NASCAR races on the radio. Ouch. <laughs> I would take a different car. <laughs> yeah. One that I was driving and he could follow along behind if he wanted. But anyway, I said, uh, Arnold, I got a uh, Tahoe XL Denali something. There was something else to do with it. The big heavy one. And he said, Ben, he's Southern. He said, Ben, what you got is a Chevrolet with Denali written on the side. It's a land yacht. Is what it, is. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it brought me back to earth. I did not have a Denali. I had a Chevrolet with Denali written on the side. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> but you got in. I wanted to ask you, Ben, when when this young man, I don't know if he stayed. Did you ever follow up to see how if he learned any lessons, you know, from the automobile salesperson? Yeah, the young guy. Did he learn any? Yeah, I sort of. I wasn't really doing. Along? I wasn't really doing it for that reason, but uh, I was back in the dealership. I don't know, a month or two later, 
and I was wandering, you know, the cars in the shop. So I'm wandering around looking at cars. That's that's how they sell cars. People with a car in the shop wandering around <laughs> looking at cars. And I, I couldn't remember his name, but I, I said to Dick, the young man, uh, Dave, excuse me, Dave Clark. I said to uh, Dave, the young man who helped sell me the Denali, how's he doing? He says he doesn't work here anymore. Oh, so, so he, he lasted sixty days, if that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's one of the reasons we mail a lot of the closers out priority mail. I want it to get there before they quit. Well, yeah, I mean, and and in this chapter in particular, I mean, if he had paid any attention at all to two fine salespeople standing in front of him, it was a done deal. All you had to do is pick the color. There were no questions to be asked other than which color do you want? So I'm what I'm hearing from your description of him is that he was just so hell bent on, you know, going through the drill that he just didn't stop and listen. Yeah, he just came out of training and was, oh. he wanted to share everything he had learned <laughs> in one big information dump on me. And I'm sure if he stayed in selling of any kind, slowly he dialed that back. I asked Jay Douglas Edwards one time, because uh, he was always talking about develop a closing instinct. And I said, how does one develop a closing instinct? And he said, close too soon and too often. It's easier to back off of too much than it is to add on because you're not doing well. So I, I found some wisdom in that and, that, and I was guilty of it. It helped me in two ways. One, it taught me how to explain it to other people. Two, it taught me how to start dialing back. Because when we were recruit, recruiting, for instance, it and Holiday Magic Cosmetics, multi-level marketing company, biggest in the world at the time, uh, I'd been through training, went through with Zig Ziglar and, and several other heavyweights that went on to become heavyweights in selling. And I was going to tell you everything I knew about the marketing plan and the cosmetics and so on. Uh, all you had to do was just sit there and shut up and let me talk. Uh, a cute story from that era. My sponsor, Bill Dempsey, one of the great salespeople of all time. Uh, we had a system. If you couldn't close your prospects at the end of the meeting, you're sitting there at the table drawing circles. You raised your hand. And a more experienced salesperson would come over and just sort of gently butt into the conversation. And uh, I became the head of those people later. But at this point, I was still raising my hand. Dempsey came over and uh, he says, what's going on here? Who are these lovely people? And, and I introduced everybody. And then he sat down and he said, uh, I, I see by Ben's notes, you're at this point. Let me share a couple of things with you. And then he starts in and I said, yeah, uh, that's right. And and here's something else you need to know. And Dempsey did the slow burn converse, uh, head turn towards me, waited for me to shut up and then turned back to the prospects and picked up at the next word and what he was saying. And he didn't go 30 seconds before I said, yeah, Bill, and tell him about this and tell him about this. And so on. and I did that three or four times. Finally, Bill stood up, straightened up his cufflinks. He was very dramatic, took a long time to do it, straightened up his cufflinks. He said, I'm sorry, Mr. And Mrs. Wiki, or whatever the names were. Uh, we have a system here when a young, new 
inexperienced salesperson can't close his prospect, he raised his hand. He raises his hand because he doesn't have the skills to close you. Uh, that's why I'm here. Ben raised his hand. Now, since I got here, Ben apparently believes he does have the skills to close you now. So I'm going to let him do that. Have a good evening. And walked away from the table. And I'm sitting there. These two are staring at me. I'm confident. I don't really remember, but I'm confident they didn't join the business that night. No. Because of me. It ain't so. <laughs> What and and here's I mean two things are going through my head while you're recounting that. One, a lot of people would just said I'm out of here. I'm gonna go pump gas. I'm not gonna do this. I mean I'm not going to be humiliated like this. It's not me. They would just leave. You apparently learned a lot from that. And Almost all it. those situations taught me a lot. If only solving that one problem, you know, if somebody else is selling, shut up. When I take people on, if I'm training for a company, I take somebody on a sales call or something. When we leave the office, I tell them this, as we pull up at their office or home or whatever, I repeat it. When I'm talking, you don't say a word. You only speak if I look directly at you and ask you a question. And I won't ask you any questions that can't be answered in a word or two, preferably yes or no. Do you understand? Yes. Do you understand that if you violate that rule, I will get up, excuse myself, and leave? I'll do a Dempsey on, on them. Uh, yes. And most of the time, they then shut up. And I said, if they ask you a question directed right at you, you smile, nod, and look at me, which gives me permission to answer that question. I may get back to you, and if I do, be prepared to say yes or no. Got it? So, and that all comes from that night at the Georgian Terrace Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, when Bill Dempsey pulled me up short by my choke chain <laughs> and left me totally humiliated in front of two customers. How long did it take you to, and I've interrupted you a couple of times. I'm surprised you haven't pulled my joke. Jane. Thank you for not doing that. I'm not, I look stupid, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> but how did you, I mean, something like that, that you, and you use the word humiliating. How long did it take you to get over your ego and how long did it take you to go? Oh, I get it. Uh, oh, I get it. I got right then. Yeah. Uh, the uh, and and I don't think I've ever violated that particular rule again. Humiliation was solved by the next sale. Oh, okay. Let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, I I just the earlier you can make a sale in the day, the evening, or whatever, the better the rest of the day goes. I used to cheat. I've been sort of meaning to find an excuse to tell you the story. When I was a young manufacturer's rep, tra traveling the. Southeastern United States, representing a whole bunch of different products, housewares, primarily cookware, conhall marks, contact, stick-on shelf paper, et cetera, et cetera. My, one of my little tricks, because I was, uh, oh, I'm guessing 21 or 22 or so, I, I sometimes had a hard time checking into a hotel or motel because they want to make sure I was old enough and did my parents know where I was. I weighed 142 pounds, still had remnants of acne, and I had a flat top. 
So I'll, I'll, oh, you were cute. Yeah, that's one way of phrasing it. Uh -huh. uh, but when I would get up in the morning at the hotel, or I keep saying hotel, they were motels that I stayed in. Upscale was Howard Johnson's. Downscale was whatever had a light in front. And uh, I'd get up early, and I would go to F.W. Woolworth or Kresge uh, or H.S. Kress or one of the dime stores. We had a deal with them for contact we sold them some other stuff too but contact stick on shelf paper they all had a huge four-sided rack of the paper in every one of their stores and if a salesman came in me in in that area and took inventory and said here's what you need the manager just signed off on it uh so i would get up early i said my first real appointment was at nine o'clock I'd be in a F.W. Woolworth store at eight, counting contact shelf on paper and writing uh, up an order and taking it to the manager. So that wasn't that he would have probably ordered it if I hadn't come by when somebody pointed out that they were out of X, Y, Z pattern. Uh, it was to get an order in my pocket, in my inside suit coat or sport coat pocket so that when I made my first real sales call of the day, I had the confidence of a person who's already written up an order this morning. Now that sounds goofy, I know, but no, I'm telling you, it worked. <laughs> For me, it worked. Well, you, you start as you mean to go on. Yep. Yeah. And it, it gave me that attitude of, of, uh, I want your order, but I'm not going to miss a meal if I don't get it. I already have an order in my pocket. And if you don't buy next, I'll go on to somebody else. But I already got one. And a few times I'd be driving past a Kresge or they were one almost the forerunner to Kmart, but be driving by a store and mate, let's say the day wasn't going real well. I'd pull into the store and write up another order. <laughs> so when I called on another important customer important meaning larger order uh i now had two orders in my pocket and well, uh, it's a it's a mental thing i mean now yep. you've got the confidence it might be small it might have been easy you know there was no real brain work going to it but you've got the confidence you've, you've done part of your job already and you can drop that in you know right. i was calling on a customer earlier today and when he was signing his order he said so I'm saying to the current customer or prospect, I write orders. This isn't my first rodeo. It's not even my first rodeo of the day. And uh, it's 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 like when I said to you a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I have a small circle of friends all over the world, mm -hmm. and you and you caught me on it. I but did. That's sort of the attitude that I've always had with customers. I'm doing fine. You're, you're not holding it out in front of me like a carrot in front of a rabbit. Uh, I've written orders today. I've written hundreds of orders this month. I'm doing fine. And it gives you the strength. It did me. Some people listening to this might be saying, oh, I don't need all that. Maybe you don't. I did. And it made me a lot of money selling four rolls of contact stick-on shelf paper might have solidified a $50,000 order 10 minutes later.
Well, it's mental. It's not really, I don't want to say mental gymnastics, but it's mindfulness. I mean, you're mindful about how you're showing up, how you're, how you're presenting to yourself. Yep. And that's important. Listen, we are at the risk of like, I have a, some control over this show, which listeners should understand. I don't. Yes, you Uh, do. We have four minutes to go, and I want you to tell them about your upcoming uh, podcast coaching program, for lack of a better word. We are still working on that. We're at the final run. I'm excited about it. The new year is coming up. And you've heard me say this before, Ben. I'm not, I am a marketer to some degree, but these days, podcasting really is marketing 101 it's a way to get your voice heard it's a way to talk about your business it's a way to share whatever is going on in your industry it's a way if you're an author to get on shows like mine and talk about your books it's marketing 101 and more and more people have discovered that that they need to get their voices heard so we are we're just on top of it and i'm really excited i was hoping for this week and really, it was not realistic because, you know, Christmas, New Year's, but come New Year's, I'm telling you, it's going to be out there and it's going to be a lot of fun. And it's going to be very important for a lot of people. And Ben, where can people find your mentoring program and the closers, the sales Bibles, the closers? If you're interested in my mentoring program where I try to do for other people what Dr. Napoleon did for me when he was hired to be my mentor, uh, many years ago, uh, just shoot me an email. My email is bfg3 at directcon.net. That's B as in boy, F as in Frank, G as in gay, the numeral three at direct, D I R E C T C O N, directcon.net. And just say something in the message or subject line that you're interested in the mentoring program. And we'll send you back a letter. We won't call you. We won't harass you. It's sort of like selling land in Arizona. (laughs) We'll put the information in your hand. And then if you want to follow up, you can do it. As far as the books, the best deal is at eBay, oddly enough. Go to stores, S-T-O-R-E-S dot eBay dot com, C-O-M forward slash Ronzoni Books, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E-B-O-O-K-S. And I send you there because they offer better pricing than I do at my own website, Uh, free shipping, which we don't offer at my own website, and they'll still be signed and dated because they bring them to me to sign before they ship them out. So that's how you do the two things, and I'd love to deal with you. And I recommend Denise's new program on podcasting. Uh, It's going to be wonderful. She and David Brown are are putting together an unbelievable package. We are, and we're both excited about it. We had another conversation today, and I need to call you later today, Ben. I was having a conversation with as a former podcast guest of mine, and I've worked with him on other things, but he's got a nonprofit that is whoever got a hold of his website and his marketing just, they need to be flogged. So I'm trying to unravel all of that. But at some point he brought up sales and I went, sales? Well, I'm talking with Ben Gayhart. So we talked to me. I want to introduce you to him. I want him at the very least to get the book. So anyway, 
this is the end of the year. This is our last podcast for this year. What are we going to be talking about in the new year? Well, let's go to page 131 in the closers part two. Here's how to show your benefits. Page 131 closers part two, which will tie in perfectly with what we've discussed today. Got it. I'll get that made up. Listen, thank you, Ben. I am, and I have to tell you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's, I don't even remember now what month that we did this year, but when we started this, but I am so glad you raised your hand and said, pick me, pick me. And then I said, pick me. Pick me. <laughs> I look forward to Wednesday every week. I mean, I just so enjoy chatting with you and picking your brain, if, you know, in a matter of, I don't need, you know, in a matter of course, I guess, but I've read the books. Obviously I've read the books and you're a friend of mine, but every single time I talk with you, I find something new that I just went, Oh, I would have never thought of that. So thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being my co-host. And I look forward to the new year. Same here. Know that Gigi and I send you our love. You're one of our favorite people on the planet. And right back at both, if you will listen, Happy New Year, and I will see you next Wednesday. See you then. Okay, bye.